welcome to episode two of the BC Museum Association's IBFOC Network podcast. My name is Jasmine and I'm the coordinator of this network. In this episode, I chat with Nicole Priesel, Indigenous Education Programmer at Burnaby Village Museum. I met Nicole back in March at one of the IBPOG Network's in-person teen talks. And for those who don't know about them, teen talks are informal networking events that we host online and in-person every month. A space where IBPOG professionals in arts and culture can meet each other, chat, have a snack, and ask for advice. Our March session at the Surrey Nature Centre was such a fun one, thanks to all the great people who showed up to support us and to get to know each other. Nicole was one of those people, and I think I can speak for most of us when I say that we left that day in complete awe of her. In her role at Burnaby Village Museum, Nicole has set out to transform and expand the Indigenous spaces. If you haven't visited before, the museum was built in the 1970s to model a colonial settlement. So when you walk around the museum, it feels like you're walking through a town with many storefronts that you can enter, green spaces to wander, a train station, a whole variety of interactive options for visitors. In this episode, Nicole shares about her work with the Indigenous Learning House, the Cedar Grove, the Matriarch's Garden, and even an indigenization of the real estate office building. We discuss the value of inviting others into the process of designing community spaces, other BIPOC spaces on the site, including the Japanese Ofuro or bathhouse, and soon to be revealed South Asian bunkhouse, and the current exhibit on show called Truths Not Often Told, which features the stories of South Asian women. We also chat about the impact of telling intersectional histories, the power dynamics that come into play when determining what even counts as history, and the value of telling contemporary Indigenous stories, especially when combating harmful colonial myths and drawing the line between cultural appreciation and cultural appropriation. Nicole and her team are doing such powerful work, and I can't wait for you to hear more about it. This episode was recorded on site inside the Indigenous Learning House there, and photos of many of the spaces that we chat about can be found on the podcast page. Okay, let's dive into the episode. Thanks, Nicole, for joining me today here on the Ivy Fuck Network podcast. <laughs> We're recording here in person today at Burnaby Village Museum on the uh, unceded stolen lands. Yeah. Say stolen, yeah. yeah. The lands of the Hunkaminam uh, and Squamish-speaking peoples. Um, thank you so much for having me here today. Yeah. Do Thanks you mind for coming. introducing yourself, who yeah. you are, um, maybe telling us a little bit about your career, too, and what you do here? Yeah, that sounds great. So my name is Nicole. I'm um, the Indigenous Education Programmer here at the Burnaby Village Museum. I'm Stalo. I'm a member of the Stalo Nation from La Camel First Nation. And then my great-grandmother was Skoomish from Lahan, or Mission Reserve One. And my great-grandfather was Katsi. And I grew up and was raised in Burnaby. And oh, and on my mom's side, I'm third-generation Canadian settler. So I'm kind of mixed. And I work here at the museum. I've worked here for about a year and a half. I came almost shortly after having just graduated university. So I graduated in um, industrial design from Emily Carr. Cool. Uh, yeah, I really liked it. It was really fun. But this is a very like, 
I, w- I would say when I explain like what my degree is in and then what I'm doing now, people are kind of like, how does that relate? But a big thing that I was doing in university was partaking in material practice. So I got to learn from some really amazing people, but in particular, um, Brenda Crabtree, who is um, indigenous. She's a, I would, I would call her a master cedar weaver. Um, Michelle Sound, who does a lot of material practice as well, um, but is a visual artist and just other really amazing people that kind of came in to visit the site and I got to learn from them. And so throughout my entire time at Emily Carr, I was able to learn these material practices from respected elders, knowledge keepers, people that had been doing this for a long time. Mm -hmm. And so I always kind of like joke that I got two degrees kind of thing. Like I feel like, (laughs) I feel like the amount of effort and time and energy that I put into learning indigenous material practices, I was also obviously putting into my degree. So I I feel like at the same time as like learning design techniques, I was also learning like how to make drums, how to bead, how to do tufting, things like that, you know, how to cedar weave, how to wool weave. And what's really cool is that, um, you know, my auntie and my grandma were huge artists. My auntie still is. And being able to kind of learn from them, but then also continue my knowledge in other ways of like learning from other people, expanding my knowledge was really awesome because then I can bring that back or how I look at it is I've helped bring that back um, to my family, to my friends, to my loved ones, Mm -hmm. community members, other indigenous people, and also just non-indigenous people as well, you know? Mm -hmm. So basically after I graduated, I continued kind of teaching material practice classes. Mm -hmm. I became really interested in I guess eight years ago, so like in the middle of my degree, I became really interested in Coast Salish ethnobotany. So learning about Coast Salish plants mm-hmm. and and wildlife, and um, I just like adored it. I just loved it. You know, like mm-hmm. my grandma taught me a little bit, but then like taking her knowledge and continuing it, that really inspired me to start doing like tea blending classes, like all the teas we see over there, <laughs> all the plants for like dye workshops, right? Like the Oregon grape oh, we have here. Oh, dye workshops? Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, so <laughs> I love, I haven't taught one here yet, but I'm, I'm planning on doing one in the fall yeah. and I just, I love it. Like it's just one of my like biggest passions. And so mm-hmm. I was doing these workshops and then the pandemic hit mm-hmm. and I was, you know, struggling to find kind of uh, full-time work, work that was like a little more stable. I was kind of funny here and there, but just, not anything that that I can stay in for a long amount of time, mm-hmm. and that's when the Burnaby Village Museum had posted a call for an Indigenous programmer. Mm-hmm. And I guess at first I was kind of like, I didn't I didn't apply the very first time the deadline hit, mm-hmm. because the requirements or what they were looking for the job call had so many things that I just didn't think I was qualified for. And I just was like, oh, I don't have that. I don't have this experience. Like, Mm -hmm. a lot of my experience is based in learning from elders, learning from knowledge keepers, learning from practicing artists. Not all of it comes from learning in school. Not all of it, a little, only a tiny bit, comes from my degree itself. Mm -hmm. So I was kind of like, "Mm, I I don't think I'm qualified for this. So I didn't apply for it. Mm -hmm. And then... It was my current boss emailed me and said, hey, like, we'd love if you just took a chance and applied. And same thing. I said, no, I don't think I can. Like, I, 
I just really didn't have um I don't want to say the confidence, but I just didn't think, oh, there. why would I put my time into applying for this job when I know I don't have so many of the requirements, right? Mm-hmm. And then a couple of months passed by and <laughs> she emailed again. And she said, no, hey, I'd love to sit down with you and talk, talk to you about the, the job itself and maybe you can ask questions. Mm-hmm. And then that's when I sat down with her and after talking with her, I thought, oh, okay, I think I can do this actually. You know, like mm-hmm. sometimes when you see things written down on paper, especially when you see lists of things and required degrees and past experience. It's really intimidating, It's right? so intimidating. Yeah. And after talking with her, I was like, okay, I think I can do this. So yeah, I think about, about two or three months later, I was hired on. So it was nice. it was good. It was a lot of work, but it was good. And it, yeah, there definitely was things in this job that I hadn't had experience in and that I've had to learn. But I definitely would say that I'm glad that I like I went out for it, you know. And mm-hmm. so yeah, um, again, kind of looping it back into the original questions that like I a lot of people go like, what? what how does design relate to this? But I think that that material practice background, mm-hmm. that knowledge of like learning from elders about Kosalish history and protocol and teachings and just growing up co-salish myself has helped with this job you know Mm -hmm. so that's how i kind of see it related at least but yeah yeah well because working in a position like indigenous education programmer you're expected to bring lived experience to this job right yeah in a way that other positions they're not asking for the same thing exactly you being indigenous is so central to what you do exactly um can you talk a little bit about that and like what yeah. excites you, like some of the stuff that you, you're excited to bring into these spaces yeah. and some of the things that maybe you're more cautious about too, you want to make sure that yeah. knowledge is being passed on perhaps exactly. in a more ethical way. Yeah, know, exactly. Way Following protocol. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. And I think that's a big, that's a big area of, you know, like, I think that, I think that how I look at things, and this is a teaching among many, if not all, indigenous cultures and nations, mm-hmm. is that that good heart, good mind, mm-hmm. um, a rule that we like to follow, and it's something that I was brought up with, right? Yeah. And my grandma said, you're bound to make mistakes. You're bound to do things that go against protocol or maybe hurt other people, mm-hmm. but if you can always make your decisions beforehand with that good heart, good mind, kind of mindset and think about how does this not just affect me but how does this affect or reflect right Mm -hmm. reflect myself my teachings but my family my community my loved ones right my culture and that's a big ask that's a big ask for anyone but it is something that I try to do and that's why I think that when I'm here and when I'm choosing you know what to share and when not to share I'm doing things in a really slow way Mm -hmm. because you know, for me, it's more important to be respectful and to follow that protocol and to make sure that I'm doing things in a good way than to come in here and go, oh, there's so many areas, you know, like, oh, I need to make this exhibit look really good. I need to make the garden look amazing. I need, you know, you, we want to do all of that. But if I was to go and rush ahead, which, you know, sometimes I want to (laughs) because I'm impatient, but if I was to go and rush ahead, I might actually overstep a boundary. Mm -hmm. I might actually do things in a non- kind of respectful way and so for me it's about going about things slow slow and Mm -hmm. taking my time and that's not always in line with you know when you're working for a different organization I've been at least grateful that you know for the most part my my co-workers understand that right Mm -hmm. and that they're not there's no I don't feel any pressure to like 
oh, I have to bring this in, right? Or I have right. to do this. And so yeah. it's like that gradual process. And, um, you know, choosing what to share, it's like I at least have, a, I would say at least a good grounding on what's appropriate to share. You know, like mm-hmm. a lot of people, sometimes they go, oh, well, why don't you share about how you process or how you like harvest cedar bark? Why don't you mm-hmm. talk about how you do all of that? And I, I just go, that's not my place. There might be some... Um, some indigenous people out there that do share that and that want to share that and that can share that and that's a hundred percent like okay but mm-hmm. for me personally that's just not something that I find aligns with my teachings mm-hmm. you know and it's like sure. cedar processing cedar harvesting cedar weaving has been such this practice hasn't always just been so available right and I, I go back to like this story that when I first started cedar weaving, I went to my grandma and I said, grandma, I had never learned about this, right? Like I, I obviously knew about cedar baskets, but our family didn't really talk about it a lot, but we had cedar baskets in the mm-hmm. house. And I, I was kind of questioning, I was like, why, why haven't you ever taught me anything, you know? And, yeah. and she was saying, you know, when she was growing up, mm-hmm. her grandma, right? So my great, great grandmother was actually a cedar weaver and a wool weaver wow. and was the last in our family to do that. Mm-hmm. But she always said that her grandma was always scared to pass that on because at the time it wasn't it wasn't a practice that was being celebrated like it is now, right? Mm-hmm. It's always been celebrated within our communities, but it wasn't being celebrated within, you know, settler society. Right. And she did it for, you know, cultural reasons, but also in order to help the family survive, right? Right. And so it was really amazing that my grandma was able to learn from her grandma, learn and see her grandma weave, but that that connection stopped, right? Mm-hmm. Right with that, with my great-great-grandmother. And it wasn't celebrated until my generation, me and my cousins. Right. And my grandma said, like, I don't take that lightly, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I don't take, whenever I get to learn something mm-hmm. or reclaim something, I don't take that teaching lightly. Like, mm-hmm. I, I take that to heart because for so long, her ancestors, her mom, her kids, her siblings, her aunts and uncles were shamed for doing that. Mm-hmm. And so for me to just come here with what I would consider privilege of being able to openly do this activity with no shame no you know and be able to go and oh i'm just gonna go see your harvest and i'm gonna share it with the world i want to share it i do want to share the teachings but i want to make sure i'm respecting the fact that this teaching has just been able to come back to us in the past couple generations and that you know i want to respect those people that helped keep it alive Mm -hmm. and helped this practice survive through Mm -hmm. a really tumultuous time and that that maybe it's not on me to be the one to share it with the world so I kind of always try to keep those kind of things in mind when I'm choosing what to share so I always kind of go like is this a cultural object right like something to me would be oh I might hold a cedar weaving class Mm -hmm. but I'm not going to hold a cedar like harvesting cedar bark harvesting class because I I found those two things very different Mm -hmm. right one's like one requires you know protocol intention Mm -hmm. teachings connection to the land, all of that. And one definitely includes those things, but can be more of an opportunity to share Mm -hmm. and teach. So I kind of, I try to keep things like that separate where I'm like not bringing in, you know, um, like a, a, yeah, some workshops where I'm, I'm making sure I'm sharing what I know I'm comfortable at least sharing. Right. Yeah. 
So let's go back to you learning then. Yes, so did totally. Did your grandmother yeah. teach you or how did, because yeah. I've seen you, you weave now. Yes, right totally. Now. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so we were walking around earlier and Nicole was showing me some baskets that she has here yeah. on site. Yeah. So my grandma was an amazing woman. I absolutely, like, I just, I, I still get really emotional when I talk about her because mm-hmm. she just absolutely carried such amazing teachings with her. She was an artist herself, but more of like a visual artist, so like painting. But what she did teach me was a bit of plant knowledge and her plant knowledge on just some very, you know, basic plants was, you know, the foundation that really spurred that passion of mine. Mm -hmm. And so same with the weaving. She didn't teach me weaving, but she did share those lessons from her grandma and these stories that I love about her going over to her grandma's house, who was Katesy, and, and showing up and not knowing her where her grandma was. And then like an hour later, her grandma would be like hopping down the road, <laughs> big bundles of cedar on her shoulders. Yeah. Or she'd come in in the middle of winter and her grandma would be at like a loom just like this one, right. weaving a giant Salish like blanket or processing wool. Mm-hmm. And hearing those stories, like while I didn't get those direct teachings from my grandma, mm-hmm. those stories alone, really helped me. My grandma's stories of of what she was able to witness as a kid, of mm-hmm. ceremonies, of cultural practices, of material practice or weaving or plant yeah. knowledge, those stories alone just helped give me such an inspiration. You know, mm-hmm. for me, you know, growing from my family, we had teachings. We, we grew up with some knowledge, but a lot of it was, you know, was hidden in a way, right? Mm-hmm. Or was lost in many ways, yeah. right? And that was tough because my aunties and uncles and my dad, they would do everything they could for us, right? They signed us up for like the indigenous circle. It was called Aboriginal Circle back then in the school system. Mm-hmm. They would take us out on field trips. They would take us to cultural spaces and they did all they could, but they were also limited in what they were given, right? Mm-hmm. And what they were had been passed down. And so when... I was in high school, I was really interested, and like I said, I, I right around the end of high school and then all throughout university, that's when I started to kind of like reclaim a lot, you know? And it was like, I had some basic knowledge, I had some teachings and stories, and that really helped drive me forward, because I really felt like my family always wanted to know more, but just were limited in what they had. And so once I started learning more and connecting more, then many of my uncles and aunts and cousins they would also it would inspire them to continue learning you know and and for them to like look into what interested them and now there's so much opportunity out there and I think it's amazing I mean definitely still a long way to go but I love seeing how everyone in my family has found their own like niche or their own area of interest their own passion and it it culture saves lives like it really does and it it connects us and it makes Mm -hmm. us feel whole and like, I see how my dad, it might make me emotional, but for my dad, he grew up in like white suburbia as mm-hmm. the only person of color in his entire school. And he definitely was proud to be indigenous, but wasn't always, that wasn't always able to be felt by him, if that yeah. makes sense, right? Like he struggled a lot and to see him now be able to go to these indigenous celebrations and partake in different like indigenous events and all of that I love to just see his face and how he just feels so proud of who he is now you know like there's no shame there and he just is so 
excited to always learn more, share what he knows, and that that to me is so worth it. Yeah. I don't know if the question was about weaving. No, but... no, 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 that's okay. <laughs> I hope that I answered it. I think, like, trying to figure out who you are in your identity. Yeah. You look to other people for examples, right? Totally. To see, you know, to see what your options are, but also yeah. to learn where you can grow as a person yeah, too. Yeah, exactly. I know in my own community, like my, I'm not able to speak Punjabi fluently. Yeah, totally. But I've connected through other ways through like learning about our history. But yes. I see my cousins, you know, they connect to who we are through music, through you yes. know, other parts of our culture. Exactly. Um, Food or yeah. music, like mm-hmm. dancing, all kinds of areas. And it's just, exactly. And it's, it's just beautiful to see that I just think for so long, so many people were just shamed or made fun of or excluded mm-hmm. or made to feel weird. They were othered, right? They were, mm-hmm. you know, made to feel... Like you can't like, be anything. Exactly. Right? You're not going to fit in here, but also you're not going to fit in with your own Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And mm-hmm. and this is kind of off topic, but... Yeah. Well, kind of, but not really, but... In our school programs, we love to pass around different medicines, different teas, medicines, all kinds of stuff, plants, and we love the kids. I just love hands-on learning. I think it's yeah. the most fun. So I love including that in, you know, in my teaching. And so we're passing around different stuff. And what we noticed was a lot of kids would kind of go, ooh, I don't like that. Oh, that smells icky. And we'd be like, we actually would, we now have it. Even before we pass the, the things out, we, yeah. we stop the kids and we go, hey, you know, we're going to pass these around. Mm-hmm. And they smell different. They taste different. They look different. Mm-hmm. And every single one of us in this room are from different cultures, different families, backgrounds. These cultures have different foods, teas, medicines, you name it. Every single one of those things is different and unique. Mm-hmm. But not one is better than the other. Just because we don't like one doesn't mean the other one, you know, is better or, yeah. or vice versa, mm-hmm. right? And I love seeing how kids get that, mm-hmm. you know? They're not like, mm, no, you know, like, <laughs> they go, oh, okay. Yeah. And we give them the language to then go, hey, we pass around this one plant. It's a very perfumey smell, right? Mm-hmm. And we pass it around. And there's always kids that love the smell, and there are some kids that don't like it. And we say, hey, if you don't like it, that's okay. We're not forcing you to like something. But instead, use language like, that's not my favorite, or actually, I prefer a different smell, yeah. right? Or that's not my cup of tea. I like that one because it's a bit of a pun. But <laughs> And it's cool to see that these kids instantly accept that. Yeah, They're not going, ugh, right? And what I love, too, is that there are some kids in there when we have that little disclaimer in the beginning of, like, all our all our foods, medicine, teas are different. But what I love is that I think like these a lot of the kids and oftentimes like the parents in the room will be yeah. literally like nodding their head because <laughs> I know that we've all been in that situation. Yeah. You know, where we've been like made fun of, excluded, or made to feel like whatever our maybe it's our food, maybe it's our teas, our medicines, whatever it might be, are weird. Just because they don't fit what settler society deems as yeah. right and I love just seeing that every kid that we talk to has respected that role yeah. every single kid and they go okay so these kids at age six seven eight are able to hear something one time mm-hmm. and instantly understand it and respect it yeah and I think that just shows a lot about hopefully where we're going as a society right yeah. that we're like beginning to become more inclusive and more understanding i know it's not perfect but mm-hmm. at least that small example gives me a bit of hope you know yeah so i love that because i just remember what it felt like to be so shamed like especially when i was in high school to go into the indigenous circle right like mm-hmm. the group where you could go and, and learn and how much shame was around that 
For right. what? Right? Yeah. For what reason? Well, we weren't doing anything bad. <laughs> so, yeah. No, I think yeah. othering people is a learned behavior. Yes. Right? So totally. that's great. You're starting kids with the foundation to be more understanding. Exactly. Yeah. And giving them the language to go, okay, I can disagree with something or I can say something's not my favorite, but yeah. I don't have, there's, there's no need to be disrespectful, right? Because yeah. I think a lot of times we're not giving the kids those tools to then explain themselves. And of course, if they know the word weird, they're going to use the word weird. They probably don't mean it to be mean. No, they're but they're going to use it for everything. Exactly. Yeah. That's weird. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, it's not. <laughs> and here, let me tell you what you can say instead. <laughs> yeah. Everything you've given me to taste and smell today yeah. has been so good, though. Yeah. So, yeah, I love it. I love it. it has smelled weird. Just every <laughs> single thing. I'm like, and do you want to taste this? Do you want to taste like, this? Yes, yes, yeah. please. Yeah. I'll yeah. take it. I'll take it. <laughs> yeah. Well, even that, like, you don't get that opportunity in a lot of, of museum spaces yes. like this, right? So, so true. Yeah, I'm going to take advantage yeah, of it. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. And that's what I love with the kids, too, is like when we do mm-hmm. school programs here, I love that they can actually hold these cultural objects. and just for anyone who's like listening, they're not like old cultural objects. They're not like sacred cultural objects. They're things that I have made. So everything that we have as a school program is something that I've made mm-hmm. when I've been learning. So all yeah. my old weavings that I practice on, made mistakes with, and all my teas that I've gathered that maybe are, are too dry now or, or maybe weren't process properly things that can be touched picked up mm-hmm. smelt even if you want mm-hmm. um because i believe that like our culture is so every culture is so rich but i love the material the materials of coast Salish culture cedar wool rawhide for drums and tanned leather smoked leather mm-hmm. and i think that like what a great opportunity instead of these kids just seeing it behind a glass case where they can't touch it they can't pick it up why not give them the opportunity to interact with these things and to learn more about it and yeah. to gain respect, right? Gain respect mm-hmm. for these objects by seeing how they're made, by seeing what they feel like and mm-hmm. and exploring it that way. Because there's definitely some things that definitely need to be behind glass cases. But when we always are looking at something from afar or not being able to touch or interact with it, we lose that understanding that, I guess, especially with Indigenous culture, that we are a... A culture that is constantly and always and always will be living and thriving and adapting and changing you know yeah. we follow our traditions we follow our protocol and our teachings from our ancestors but that doesn't mean that we're stuck in that that mm-hmm. we are always finding new ways and you just look at like even Salish style art right and how how far it's come and and the different techniques people are using and different art mm-hmm. styles that people are including it in and I think that to put something and just keep it behind a glass barrier doesn't allow kids to see that this is a culture that is still, I mean, these objects are all made in the last couple of years. So it's like all of these things are current and present day. And that's what I want this room to eventually be, this exhibit space, the learning house. I want to be a living studio, right? Mm -hmm. Not somewhere where you come and go back 200 years ago. (laughs) I want that for sure to have that knowledge present, but I want also the knowledge present that we are, still gathering our traditional medicines, that we're still collecting and, and harvesting cedar bark, that we're mm-hmm. still dyeing our wool, that we're still spinning, that we're still carving, all of that. Like mm-hmm. These practices will never die because we've reclaimed them, we're continuing them, we're continuing to teach them, mm-hmm. and we're sharing with others, and that's what, I, that's what my kind of mindset is, I guess. Mm-hmm. 
for school programs as well as spaces. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's so well put. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> I was really going to stumble on my words, but no, I appreciate no, no, no. that. Amazing. <laughs> so you've been expanding the Indigenous team here, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, bringing in people with amazing, like, generational yes. amounts mm-hmm. of knowledge to help you grow the gardens, grow yep. spaces like this learning house. Yeah, and the programs, yeah. Tell me a little bit about why that's important, like why yes. having that kind of support is important. Yes, thank <laughs> you for asking that. <laughs> yeah, no, I, and for me, it's been such a pleasure, like, to have to have the team growing, it means so much to me. You know, when I first started, I was the only Indigenous person working here, and it felt kind of isolating at times, not having people that understood my background or where I came from or my upbringing. It felt kind of lonely, right? Mm -hmm. I will say there was one other Indigenous person, but you know, different cultures, right? So, you know, for me, it was, it was isolating. It was, it was kind of lonely and trying to, as much as my coworkers were really open to hearing me out or to including my suggestions and all of that and having my input there's still always the thing of being understood right Mm -hmm. and i don't mean to like divulge or go a different way but Mm -hmm. it felt like when i was in design school and in emily carr there was a large chunk of indigenous students which was awesome Mm -hmm. but i would say at least i want to say i probably like the numbers are wrong but 80 percent were in visual arts where and then the rest were kind of scattered throughout Mm -hmm. and in my cohort in design there was only I want to say four or five other indigenous students Mm -hmm. I think within all of design or industrial design and that felt really lonely at times because I would go especially when I was in like I I took an extra year Mm -hmm. so when I was in my cohort I was the only indigenous person Mm -hmm. um so every critique I had, every brainstorming session I had, everything mm-hmm. where I was trying to explain, you know, my, my culture often influenced my designs, right? Mm-hmm. But explaining that, I'd always be met with, like, you know, blank stares, silence, mm-hmm. people asking really kind of silly questions. And it felt really isolating, right? right. And it was like I didn't have anyone. But as soon as I had, <laughs> uh, as soon as I took my, I took a fifth year, I had two other indigenous people yeah. in my cohort and it just completely changed. It was just like every critique I had, I had some kind of engagement. I had someone out there going, yep, I totally understand that. Or I've been there too. Mm-hmm. And that's how I felt here. You know, like yeah. I, I felt very kind of like alone in the first little bit. And I was also struggling to take on all of the work that this place needed, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, they had done a, um, a bit of work before I had arrived, creating the learning house, creating the Matrix Garden, mm-hmm. but they needed a full-time Indigenous staff to help kind of take their ideas and these spaces and kind of make it into what it is now. And so for me, I was really struggling when I first started to take on all of that. It was a lot of work, like, to, like, make sure that the learning house was not just a blank room, and then to, you know, make sure the gardens were, like, kept, and then Mm -hmm. also on top of that, doing programs, both the school programs, Mm -hmm. as well as, like, public programs, and then every other little detail of work Mm -hmm. that I do, whether it's helping find indigenous entertainers or storytellers or knowledge keepers to do welcomes right Mm -hmm. for events or just little things with city relations all of that was a lot to take on Mm -hmm. and finally and you know I was given support 
at least from like this time last year to try to hire someone on but when you're kind of new and balancing everything it can be really hard to even know what you're looking for right. you know how to delegate what you're exactly to do. exactly yeah. what do I need help with what do yeah. I want this space to be and so that's finally when I reached um probably about November of last year and I was like okay I'm ready to bring someone on mm-hmm. I know what I'm looking for and we found Cheryl who's amazing and she's just fantastic and even just having her on Mm -hmm. and having her help and support has completely changed how my job is, how I see this space being utilized, how I see the indigenous representation Mm -hmm. uh, in the museum and I'm hoping to expand the team right so we're in the process of hiring some more indigenous staff members two more on and they're going to help with both leading the school programs but as well as helping this place run right Right. there's so much that goes into this whether it's like harvesting cedar you know Mm -hmm. like we go out and we harvest cedar we go out we harvest the plants we harvest the the roots for for dying we do all of that right and so to have that community feels so good because you know it's like we can we can continue to advocate for more indigenous representation on site Mm -hmm. having more voices more perspectives right just like with any culture you know, one person can't speak for everyone, right? Exactly. And so it's so important to have different Indigenous people from different backgrounds, different different upbringings to share their perspectives, to share their lived experience, their Mm -hmm. teachings, and add to various dialogue, right? So Mm -hmm. having people running programs here, hopefully. Mm -hmm. And my goal is, is that by this summer, I want at least... Every day we're open, I want at least one Indigenous staff member present. Mm -hmm. So having a museum interpreter, an Indigenous museum interpreter in one of the spaces, whether that's one of the garden spaces or, you know, one of the programming spaces, I want someone present so that no matter, you know, when you come to the museum, you can actually engage and learn Indigenous culture, Coast Salish culture. Because for so long it was me and then we had an amazing educator here. We still do, but he's only one person. And yeah. you know, to be here every single day is, is uh, not possible. So mm-hmm. yeah, to have that uh, presence here at the museum is, is so important to me. Yeah, mm-hmm. I hope that answered the question. No, it does. Okay, so you've, <laughs> you've indigenized the the real estate building. Yes, too, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yep. Land back, land back yeah, office. Yeah, more space as well. Yep, totally. Um, yeah. Do you think it's important having someone who's from this land specifically yeah. be able to speak yes. to you know the unique experience yeah. of hundred percent? Yeah, hundred percent. I think that at least for my role, especially, I do think it has to be someone Coast Salish. Mm-hmm. I think that in the early stages of what I'm considering it right now, in, this, in these early stages, yeah. you know, we haven't delved into anything too specific, but I definitely want to bring in voices from the host nations, right? Mm-hmm. Like have Tsleil-Waututh, Squamish, Musqueam, Kwantlen, you know, elders and knowledge keepers from the, the host nations or from the various nations that, that call this area home. Mm-hmm. I want their perspective too, because... Mm-hmm. As much as I can bring in my experience, again, I'm just one person. Mm-hmm. But I do think that this role and this this space needs that Coast Salish influence because, mm-hmm. like I said, Indigenous people, even Coast Salish people alone, yes, we have similar culture and s- similar practices, mm-hmm. but our songs are different. Our 
our dances, our ceremonies, mm-hmm. our teachings can be different, right? Even when it comes to like cedar harvesting, I've heard people from Stalo territory mm-hmm. have immensely different teachings than people maybe from like seashell or from the island, right. you know? And it's yeah. like, that's not even that much of an area. That's not, that's not that far away. And yet we have such different teachings. And so I do think that there needs to be Coast Salish presence and mm-hmm. that it's so important, so vital to have those teachings that come from a member of the community. And mm-hmm. it can be hard. I do think that there's barriers to bringing on Indigenous people alone, but definitely like Coast Salish people because, you know, to ask someone to come and share their knowledge, to share their teachings, that's a big ask. I don't take that lightly. Mm-hmm. It can be so much it can be so much emotional labor and emotional work mm-hmm. to come here and to open up to strangers, to the mm-hmm. public, right? And I do find that even how the museum operates. I understand why we operate like this, but we're only open, you know, in summer and then for kind of sporadic periods throughout the rest of the year. Mm-hmm. And all of that together, the emotional labor that it takes, and then also the maybe not the most stable kind of like, hey, you're here every day kind of job. Right. Yeah. I think that that creates a lot of barriers for Indigenous and Coast Salish people to apply to work here. And so I'm hoping that over the course of the next year that I talk with community members, that I talk with people that would like to work here Mm -hmm. and find out what does that look like, you know? Like, what does it look like to share teachings, to share your knowledge in a way that isn't leading to burnout, right? That isn't leading to people giving all of their energy and not getting much in return, Mm -hmm. you know? To, um, and that, that might look like a lot of different things. To me, that, at least to me, it looks like you know, having a stable kind of like, I come here like four days a week or, you know, things like that. I always have this set schedule or or this and that, but it can also look like other things, right? Yeah. And so, yeah, and hopefully working on including and inviting in more Indigenous people for permanent positions, but also inviting in Coast Salish voices to like elders, knowledge keepers, artists to come in here and be like, hey, what what do you want represented from your culture? Like, what are these teachings? Because I only have what I have. And yeah. I want to make sure we're being inclusive of every, all the nations. <laughs> yeah. Because so, you brought up a story earlier. Yeah. And I asked that you share it yes, again. totally, yeah. But we were talking about your cedar grove here. Yes, totally. And how you invited folks to come in and yep. kind of tell you yes. what they want to see in that Exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so when I first started working here, you know, I think that, People are so excited. Oh, we finally got an indigenous programmer. Let's get her to work. And I was really excited too. I was pumped and I had all these ideas. And then I think it was actually my dad who kind of like helped me kind of take a step back. And I remember him kind of saying like, well, what would like, what would your grandma do? Right. Because I think I was kind of questioning, oh, I don't know what I, what I want to do. I might do this. I might do that. I'm <laughs> getting so excited. Blue sky ideas. And he said, well, what would you, you know, your grandma do? And I go, oh, you're right. Like, what, like, what would she do? And then that's when I go, oh, maybe it's not just on me to be making all these decisions yeah. <laughs> for these spaces, right? And that's when I invited in different indigenous people. So I invited in a few aunties that I knew from different nations, but mainly Coast Salish. I invited in the indigenous educator that had been already working here before I got here, uh, Delmar Williams. I asked him, I said, hey, you're the one in this space. You know, like, what do you want to see? Like, you're the one that has to be in here and, and teaching and you're sharing. 
what's going to make you comfortable? Mm-hmm. One of those was this chair. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> he had like a, a kind of like a library principal's office style chair that was like straight back and like very uncomfortable armrests. <laughs> and I remember being like, okay, let's get you a comfy chair. All right, perfect. And then one of that was Cedar Grove. So I go, okay, I invited different people. And I actually invited my cousin. I love her perspective because she just has such a beautiful point of view. She's always... She's always so good at thinking of others, not just looking from her own perspective, mm-hmm. which I think sometimes I also get trapped in. We all do, right? And so I invited her in. She took a walk through Cedar Grove. We took her all over, right? And we walked through Cedar Grove. I was like, yeah, I don't, I just don't know what to do with this space. And at the time, it was a dirt path. There was like roots everywhere. So it was inaccessible for so many people. There was no indigenous plants. I'm talking, it was just dirt. <laughs> so it was dirt. <laughs> cedars one or two douglas firs and the rest were non-indigenous rhododendrons right and i was like okay okay this is our indigenous space all right and so my cousin walked through and she's like okay these roots definitely have to go just from an accessibility standpoint like how is like a, a grandma or someone who's in a wheelchair or has mobility issues how are they going to navigate through here right yeah. so the first thing she's like you need to put some gravel some like firm ground mm-hmm. so people can actually access it so that was a great point she had but the next point was is that she as she was walking through i hadn't even noticed this i had been working here for i think a month mm-hmm. and i hadn't even realized but you could see both the church and the old schoolhouse from Cedar Grove. Right. And to give context to people, yes, the church is a non-denominational church, and the school is not a residential school. It is an old schoolhouse, mm-hmm. so definitely in the style of what a residential school might have looked like. So I, I do understand that, yes, maybe it's not like exactly those, but I, I love that she brought that up because... Even if I am not triggered by it, that does not mean that someone else might not be, right? Mm-hmm. By being in this beautiful space and then having to look over at this church, mm-hmm. when you're learning about all these amazing plants and medicines, teas, everything, and then to look at the exact thing that squashed, you know, or that, that was demeaned, that. Yeah. exactly, right? That demeaned and that devalued those medicines, teas, plants, teachings, mm-hmm. it's like, okay, that doesn't feel very good. Yeah. And so she brought the point, she goes, do you know that you can see both the school and the church? And I was like, what? <laughs> She's like, yeah. And that was an amazing point for me because I go, okay, this is great. I can actually do something to, to help fix this. So mm-hmm. we ended up planting a bunch of Oso berry, which is often called wild plum or native plum. Um, and it's a beautiful shrub. It's a great early pollinator plant. There's teachings about like, you know, using, you can use it for medicine. I've never done that, but you can. And so it's an amazing plant that you can teach with, but then also grows up and kind of, it's a very bushy plant. Right. So then it kind of blocks the view, it blocks the view. Um, and I appreciate that. Like I appreciate yeah. her insight. And um, you know, that area, that little area that I was talking about, maybe putting um, an area of reflection, right? Mm-hmm. Having a bench in there. She actually went over there and she was like, do you know this is the one spot that you actually can't see either? In the entire Cedar Grove, you actually can't see either. And that was my, her going, I'd actually love to see some kind of like reflection space here. Yeah. And I go, oh my goodness, that's amazing. That's so smart because she's so right Mm -hmm. to to have a space that you you can have a moment of reflection, but not have to be reminded of these two things Mm -hmm. is great. And I hope that eventually Cedar Grove you know, the Oso berry plants, the hazelnut tree plants, all the other trees we've planted grow up, yeah. they grow larger, they kind of walk 
block everything out so you do feel like you're actually in the woods and then eventually I'd love to remove some of the non-indigenous rhododendrons because they are beautiful they're gorgeous <laughs> but uh you know it's it's nice to just have a forested area that's just indigenous Coast Salish plants and making it feel more like what an actual forest here would feel like yeah. and I can guarantee you you're not seeing European rhododendron when you're walking <laughs> in the deep forest here so <laughs> yeah but no it's it's true I, I love to include those different perspectives mm-hmm. and those different thoughts and I've heard so many different ideas from different people but like at the end of the day I want to make sure that I'm including an indigenous worldview and what other people want to see because it's not just me that gets to control this area mm-hmm. you know and there was definitely people that questioned my thought process throughout it but I think that how I see these spaces the learning house the gardens is they're always going to be a work in progress they're living spaces they're not exhibits that are plastered and things are glued down and Mm -hmm. they're set in stone it's like I see the learning house as a living studio a Mm -hmm. studio where any indigenous artist or someone who does material practice can come in and they can go, oh, perfect, a loom, oh my goodness, I can weave, or oh my goodness, there's beads here, or there's cedar, yeah. oh, I can use this to die with, I can carve here. That this space eventually becomes an area that no matter what you do or where you're from, you can just pick something up and start making. And so, again, it, that, that takes time. That takes time to make yeah. it, to develop that. And I think that I'm just trying to have patience and uh, and also the support of coworkers to help make these dreams, you know, kind of a reality, right? Yeah. Cheryl or the curatorial team helping me make these spaces into what I really want them to be. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. yeah. It takes time to build the trust, right? So that yes. people know they can come in, they can use these spaces. Like, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's so true. And that's the thing. I was just trying to remind myself like I'm one person, you know, yeah. and <laughs> things will happen. I just have to have patience, right? And I want to eventually have more elders and artists just working out of the space. Uh, Delmar Williams, who's amazing, he's Louet and Squamish. He comes in here, he shows all his smoked tanned hides. Mm-hmm. He shows his tools that he's made. He has so much amazing things to show. But I, I also just want to show even more, you mm-hmm. know, like hopefully they'll show like weavers, like both wool and cedar weavers, maybe people that do fish skin, mm-hmm. um, leather and beaters, all kinds of stuff, so yeah. With time. Awesome. With yeah. time. They're yeah. going to come. Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I think you're doing an amazing job so far. I can already <laughs> feel it. Yes. Like, the Burnaby Village Museum is a colonial site, mm-hmm. right? You walk in, like, it's a village. You, you see yes. it in the built It's history. quite literally a colonial village. <laughs> <laughs> but I, th- I can even tell just spending time with you today. Yeah. Like, this side of the street is changing. Yes. <laughs> I love it. I can yes. feel the difference, you know, the yeah. Southeast bunkhouse is coming exactly. in. Exactly, the Ofuro. The, the Ofuro, too. Yes. Um, we've got the, the learning house right here yep. as well. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, it's definitely, and you know, again, things take time. They can't just happen overnight, and especially when you are a museum that is a part of a larger organization like the City of Burnaby, it's, mm-hmm. there's going to be, like, a lot of obstacles in your way when you mm-hmm. have to deal with, you know, forms and policies and other people's timelines it's always going to take a long time and so I think having patience is important but it's so exciting to see that my other co-workers they're really pushing to make this happen too you know yeah. like the curatorial team has been working so hard for so long to mm-hmm. make sure that this space includes different perspectives includes different voices 
whether it's be their, their like exhibits or even their like um, they they have like recorded stories and and things like that on their website, mm-hmm. um, including those is a process that takes time, but I can see that they're diligently working towards that, you know? And it's like, okay, yeah. I'm, I'm excited to see how it looks, even just in a couple of years from now. Yeah. It's really powerful having more than just artifacts on display yes. too, right? Like yes. having tactile things you can touch, like the teas you can smell, totally. the gardens you can interact with. Exactly. Um, hearing the oral histories over your head in the South Asian exhibit yes, space. Like exactly. all of that matters. Yep. And showing people that this exactly. is a place they can come into and they can share more of their story. Exactly. Yeah. And that, like, and I think the the title of the new exhibit is such a good, it's such a good example of that. Mm-hmm. It's it's um, truths not often told. Mm-hmm. There's so much history <laughs> in the Lower Mainland, really, and all over the world, but like yeah. in the Lower Mainland, that is never talked about, right? Yeah. That we're not taught in school, that we're not shared by our grandparents. And it's so focused mm-hmm. on that colonial history everywhere it really was until at least like a decade or so ago. And I remember being a kid and going into these cultural spaces, whether it be museums, galleries, you know, you mm-hmm. name it. And knowing I was native, knowing I was indigenous, but like kind of not seeing that connection because I was always kind of like removed from these objects Mm -hmm. I was removed from the culture and it's like I had the teachings and the culture that I grew up in with my family Mm -hmm. but it stopped there so then I go and I see these beautiful cultural objects in museums and galleries but they they feel almost like foreign to me right or or you can't touch these and I understand completely the reasons why but that's what I love about including more perspectives is that we're being able to go oh okay I see myself represented in these spaces right like I would just love to see myself as a kid doing this Coast Salish school program or coming into these exhibit spaces and seeing myself represented but also being able to like touch the objects and interact with them and know these are cultural objects from my people from my ancestors you know that is also such an amazing experience so I think altogether that's it's cool to see that, like, yeah. to see these kids. And we get so many cute kids that, like, come to sign and see the different spots. And they go, I'm from there. I'm from there. Oh, this is my culture. And I go, oh, I just, it makes me so happy. I just go, like, <laughs> how cool is it that they get to come to a museum and, like, see that, you know? Yeah. And for the past, like, century, it was only settler kids that got to do that. They yeah. came to these areas. And so now that it's more inclusive and you can see the settler history and you can see history from other cultures, I think that that's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. What I want to see more of is intersectional histories, too. Yes. Like, showing that we've we've interacted with each other. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yes, exactly. We did talk, guys. Yeah. We yeah. did talk, yeah. <laughs> Especially yeah. like in places like mills or yes, I'm thinking of the exactly. bus again. Like yep. you know, we're all like pushed to one area. Yeah. Right? So. Well, that's the thing is like I have so many friends that are indigenous, but they're a mixed race with different people. Yeah. Uh, or different cultures, and I'm like, yes, because we interacted. Yeah. Do you think that we were like you know so segregated is is not the truth you know and yeah. exactly I think I think the goal is to eventually have more of that intersectionality with the truth not often told okay. especially with like the indigenous mm-hmm. and South Asian relations and so I think just I think it, it takes time to do things in a good way mm-hmm. um 
But yeah, I want to see that as well. Yeah. And because I have stories from aunties that I've this met. This is what I wanted to ask you about. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yes, totally. But I've, I've had stories from aunties of how back in the day they, they were only ever welcome to eat mm-hmm. at like say Chinese food restaurants, mm-hmm. right? Or they were only ever welcome in these parts of town, right? Mm-hmm. And that shows you that the community of BIPOC people were all interacting, were all engaging with each other, and that they have this shared history. And yet, again, it's not told, yeah. it's not shared. And I would love to see more of that. I don't know if that was your question, but if it wasn't. Well, you shared about the Komagata Maru too. So yes. that's what I was thinking of. But yeah. all of this is so yes. valuable and rich and totally. And, yeah, what I'd like to see. Yeah. No, and exactly. <laughs> and, and like with that, I, I want to see. It's so hard because I think that oftentimes we do want to make sure that the information we're sharing is um, has some backing to it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I was told stories when I was growing up. And, and for me, I took that. I took those stories, whether mm-hmm. it be Karabagaru or other ones, as fact. Mm-hmm. Why would my auntie, why would my grandma, why would these people in, in my community be lying to me, right? Like, and these stories are shared among our people, but it's, it's interesting to me that just because they were not documented Mm -hmm. in, I'll just use, you know, the word white history books or white documents Mm -hmm. that they, you know, that they're maybe not always regarded as true now or that they're, they're questioned for their validity. Mm -hmm. And, I find it so interesting that there that these stories there's dozens of people out there that know these stories mm-hmm. if not more right mm-hmm. but we're regarding one person's view of history or one's person account of history yeah. over dozens of others mm-hmm. right and it's sad to me because there's such beautiful examples of that interconnectedness of that intertwining of communities of culture of people Mm -hmm. and yet we might not ever hear a lot of that Mm -hmm. or maybe some of us hear it but not all of us get to hear it right Mm -hmm. and I find that kind of sad in a way and I wish that there could be a way to maybe incorporate those stories Mm -hmm. in a way that I understand that we need to maybe follow guidelines and protocol but that there's a way to share those stories you know I think there is I definitely think there is but it's, again, a slow process, <laughs> like everything. It's also such a cop-out, right? Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's, how, that's how our stories were kept out for so long. Like, many yeah. BIPOC communities yeah. carry oral histories yes. with them, right? Yeah. And it's not something that's always grounded in written records, yes. documents, physical objects. Exactly. Because there's a lot of privilege in having yep. those two. Right? Being Who was the one? Exactly. Know, and being able to keep your belongings as, yep. you know, you have to move around, so... Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, that and, like, who who were the ones writing the books? Who were the ones getting published? Exactly. Yeah. Like, you know, and I think it's interesting because I remember taking an Indigenous art history class in school mm-hmm. taught by an Indigenous person mm-hmm. and wanting to quote my grandma or an auntie of mine for an essay yeah. and being told that I couldn't do that. Wow. 
And, or did, it did, I could do it, but it wouldn't count towards one of the citations. You know how you always have to meet? <laughs> oh, you have to have a minimum of five citations. And it wouldn't meet one of those. And I go, well, why? Mm-hmm. Um, like, but you're a dinner, you know. Like, yeah. why would my grandma be making something up? And so it was so fascinating to me that even an indigenous art history class taught by an indigenous person could still be kept under these colonial or Western ideas. Yeah. And it was like so frustrating to me because there's so much here. And I even tell that to the kids, you know, when the kids come and visit, I talk to them about the history of Deer Lake, what this area was used for. Mm-hmm. There's oral stories about this lake dating back you know, thousands, thousands of years. And just because these stories are not written down in a textbook don't mean they're not real, does not mean they didn't exist. And that we can actually look to different objects or different things in our environment to show us mm-hmm. that the, this history is true, right? Yeah. If we look at the stinging nettle around your lake, mm-hmm. I can look at the stinging nettle, the amount of both red elderberry trees as well as Pacific crabapple trees, and I can gain knowledge that this area was definitely used by people. Mm-hmm. There's no way, I mean, and this is just my word against whatever, but there's no way that there's going to be five dozen Pacific crabapple trees all in one area. Just, mm-hmm. oh, for fun, right? <laughs> no, it was most likely... I mean, if you're plant bombing... Yes, true, <laughs> exactly, right? <laughs> Throw them around. <laughs> but there's there's definitely like... Or the fact that the nettle is growing in an area that it might not typically grow in, yeah. right? Yeah. Like, I look at that and I go, okay, that's, that's the proof I need, mm-hmm. right? Maybe not for other people, but that's the proof I need to show me that my ancestors and many other people's ancestors live, worked... And, and did many things in this area mm-hmm. for thousands of years, right? Yeah. But again, it's that, it's just, yeah, it's how we value, it's how we hold up mm-hmm. Western versus non-Western knowledge, ideas, plants, medicine. Mm-hmm. I was even talking about the wild ginger, yeah. you know? And it's like two different cultures from around the globe found plants that have similar compounds. I wanted to ask you, yes. what's the other culture? Because I know in my culture, yes. I also grew up drinking yes. ginger tea. Totally. Especially when I wasn't feeling well. Yes, I exactly. Like really strong ginger yeah. tea. <laughs> I, I, when I say two different cultures, it's yeah. like I, I kind of am in that mindset of what I'm teaching kids because I can't say like, I'm kind of grouping yeah. people together. So I'm saying like right. South Asian culture, okay. as well as many other like Asian cultures, right? Yeah. Use ginger, right? Okay. It's found in many, many different places. But kind of saying that one culture would be indigenous people here, yeah. and then one culture would be, for a while I'm going to say, indigenous people in all over Asia, mm, parts okay. of Asia. Yeah. And so it's the regular ginger root, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the one that we cook with, the one that we use for teas we can also use as medicine right so we yeah. can use regular ginger it's often kind of like gravel right and, <laughs> and different things like that yeah. really good for calming an upset stomach yeah. nausea even like can help with headaches or inflammation in the body tea right mm-hmm. um like turmeric and ginger really good as an anti-inflammatory tea mm-hmm. um, and the same thing goes with wild ginger wild ginger not so much like edible it's more like a medicinal plant so mm-hmm. we wouldn't like cook with it the same way that we do regular ginger but it has those same compounds or those same properties of being anti-inflammatory, of helping with nausea, upset stomachs, digestive issues, and inflammation in the body. And mm-hmm. I think that what's so cool is that many different cultures from two very different places in the world found a plant and used these plants, two different plants, mm-hmm. 
that had very similar compounds and properties for the exact same thing. Mm -hmm. And I find that really cool because it shows you and it validates that non-Western medicine and non-Western practices, Mm -hmm. there was so much more that went into it. Mm -hmm. You know, it wasn't just like, this plant smells nice, let's use it. (laughs) No, we we studied these plants. We we weren't just kind of tossing it at a wall and hope it stuck, you know? Mm -hmm. all of our cultures, wherever we're from, yeah, like studied these like intensely and looked at them and took time to to see what the reactions would be, right? And I think oftentimes we can come in with this very colonial mindset of like, well, it's not, it's not proven, right? <laughs> it's not proven. It's not documented. It's not studied by scientists. And it's like, well, yeah, okay, maybe maybe it hasn't gone through all your extensive testing. That doesn't mean it hasn't gone through our extensive testing right like just two different two different things and i i look at that with wild ginger right and i go Mm -hmm. wow it's so cool that this plant has shared properties these two different plants have shared properties and then we're used for such similar things and just shows you that we weren't that we were putting in that time that Mm -hmm. energy to study and to to look at these things so yeah awesome yeah (laughs) (laughs) okay we're gonna start to wrap up yes i want to know what are your dreams for the future? For, yeah. It could be museums, cultural spaces. Yeah. We could scrap that, just talk about the world in general. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. I love that. I love that. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about museums and cultural spaces. <laughs> I think I already touched on this a little bit, but I definitely think that representation, the perspectives, the different voices, I think that's the most important part. And I love what you also brought up with the intersectionality mm-hmm. of weaving in that there's more than just that one view. Right? Yeah. That we're not static people. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Exactly. Right? Mm-hmm. And that we can continue to see. Like, I think just one thing I love is that I was looking at the Museum of Vancouver's events, right? And yeah. I'm always like, because I'm always trying to go see other Indigenous events, see what's out there, meet new people. And I was seeing their events and I thought, how amazing. They had these like really cool events. And then the names are not going to come to mind. I think one was about ribbon ribbon um, shirts, right? Okay. And there was another one just about, I think, yeah. I don't want to, like, say it because I can't remember what they were about. But they were, <laughs> okay. they were various, very, very contemporary style mm-hmm. events. And I loved that because I thought, yes, this shows people that, you know, I'll give an example of that. I had a roommate and he was a very sweet person, but he didn't grow up here, right? He didn't grow up here. He wasn't taught this. He's from a, a country that just didn't learn about, you know, indigenous people. And I remember taking him to MOA, to Museum mm-hmm. of Anthropology one time, and he very innocently, I don't want to like this, people think he was rude, but he very innocently said, oh, I thought, I didn't know indigenous people still existed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He had thought they had all died. Yeah. And I was like, but that's what colonialism wants. Exactly, you to say. <laughs> exactly, hundred percent. And I was like, I was shocked. I didn't know yeah. what to even say about that. And I was wait, like, what you know, about you? Did he know you? Yeah, he, so he knew I was okay. in this, but I think he thought it was in the same token of, um, hmm. you know, there's certain countries that have been colonized like like centuries ago, mm-hmm. and so maybe the there's people out there that are more like mixed right mm, okay. and I think he thought it was like in the same way that say if you go down into like South America mm-hmm. you know everyone down there 
has their mix. They have some kind of indigenous blood in them, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think he thought it was like, kind of like that. Mm-hmm. Where, and I explained to him, no, like we're we're still a thriving people. <laughs> I am. My my dad is. My grandma. Like we're nation members, right? Yeah. We're status holders, and we're we're people that are. You know, that doesn't make someone indigenous. But what I'm trying to say is that I'm trying to explain to him that you know that we're still thriving, we're still mm-hmm. going. And that was really hard for him to comprehend, right? Because he just had been taught this very narrow viewpoint and the very limited teaching he had gotten from his school, right? Yeah. He had just been taught this very narrow viewpoint and explaining him things about, you know, even about like colonialism in general, the Indian Act, about residential schools, the 60s scoop, all of that, potlatch ban, you name it. Mm-hmm. He he was so shocked, right? Like mm-hmm. he had no idea any of this happened. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is what I really want to see out of these spaces is that, yes, to show off our amazing culture and our teachings, our protocols, all of that from our ancestors, but then to also show that present day, right? Mm-hmm. To have events like the ones I saw at MOV where mm-hmm. they were present day contemporary issues mm-hmm. and I'm like yes that's it like I really want to show that where it's it's showing things in the present day I also think that wanting to teach people about how to engage with indigenous subjects or culture in appropriate ways right mm-hmm. I think there's this really fine line between appreciation and appropriation exactly (laughs) and I think that what I at least try to do is when I see someone that is veering towards that appropriation side is Mm -hmm. like teaching them that but oftentimes you know they they actually can't they have a hard time grasping that yeah and it's it's hard because it's not just on us indigenous people are not white people to do all that work of educating. Mm-hmm. I do think that that has to come from schools, mm-hmm. parents, caregivers, but also cultural spaces like this, right? Yeah. It has to come from these spaces where people can access this information and learn about what that difference is, is mm-hmm. that we can totally appreciate different cultures and learn things and hey, like, come and do a tea blending class, but I'm not necessarily going to teach you about, like, where to find the plants or, you know, this or that. Yeah. But I can definitely teach you about, like, why they're special to us and why they're important to us, why they're sacred and, and mm-hmm. their uses and stuff like that, right? So it's, it's that fine line of bordering on teaching people to be respectful and mindful when they're engaging in, mm-hmm. in Indigenous culture. Yeah. yeah. I hope that makes sense. It but does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think just all in all, just, like, more inclusion. We have two spaces one official one unofficial (laughs) (laughs) and we have some beautiful garden spaces but i think like in every museum i just would love to see more like i'm so excited for the south asian bunkhouse i'm excited to hopefully see more inclusion in the future coming years it's awesome that we have this representation now but i'm like excited to hopefully see this colonial museum including more and I think they're definitely open to that but just like I can't wait to see what that includes right there's so much history that has not been talked about that has not been shared that has not been written down and I would love to see that shown and displayed and celebrated here you Mm -hmm. know whether it's like the herbalist or something else or the ofuro the bunkhouse the learning house just more of that it's really it's really important to me Mm -hmm. I'm gonna clap to that yeah (laughs) 
Nice. Oh, well, thank you so much yeah. for hanging out with me today. Nicole. Yeah. Thank you, Jasmine. Such a good conversation. Yeah. I think people are going to resonate with everything that you've said. Yeah. You're so well-spoken, but also so passionate about what you're doing here. <laughs> and that's why I wanted you to come on the podcast. Because uh, the first yeah. time we met, I just stopped talking. No, and, and everyone left being like, wow, that was amazing. Like, I'm very passionate. <laughs> I was raised by a very strong mom and some very strong grandmas and strong aunties. So yes. I got that oh. <laughs> that drive. But yeah. No, and thank power you. to them too. They sound amazing. Heck yeah. They they definitely led the way. I, I put my hands up to all the matriarchs, all the aunties, grandmas, moms that have come before us, that have like led the way for us to be in these mm-hmm. sp- spaces to to be able to hold ground Mm -hmm. and to be able to also make way for the next generation you know Mm -hmm. but if it wasn't for them we wouldn't be here and I'm Mm -hmm. so thankful whenever I see elders or even just people our aunties and uncles age that have like completely revolutionized and just fought to have what we can enjoy now you know so yeah we stand on their shoulders heck yeah, yeah exactly to them yeah thank you I appreciate Thanks for it listening everyone <laughs> wow what a fun episode thanks for listening to episode two of our podcast I hope you had as much fun listening to it as we did recording it if you'd like to learn more about this podcast or the BCMA's IBPOC network you can head to our homepage at museum.bc.ca slash network on there, you'll find information about our upcoming tea and talks, our online professional development workshops, the mailing list, and episode one of the podcast with Sharn at Grisic Gordwada in Abbotsford. Lastly, if you'll be in the Burnaby area on Sunday, June 25th, come join us for tea and talk at the Nikkei National Museum and Cultural Center. All cultural professionals and volunteers who identify as Indigenous, Black, or a person of color are so welcome to attend. If you have any questions about this episode or would like to be on a future episode, contact me, Jasmine, at communications at museum.bc.ca. And that's it. Thanks for listening.